Listening to episode 75 of Sass Mouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. One day during production of I'll Cry Tomorrow, a reporter remarked that it took guts for Susan to play Lillian Ross' life story. Susan fired back, it took guts to live it. Hayward was always mindful that she wasn't just making a studio script, she had the duty of care to portray a real woman's story. In an interview, she spoke about that responsibility. She said, It's a man's world, and women must make their way the best way they can. Miss Roth went into alcoholism and despair, but her spirit never completely flickered out, and she found a way to restore it. I think this is something we're saying to women, and I think women will understand what it means. This is not fiction. It's the story of a life, a real life. The production had a profound effect on Susan's life. It brought her to the brink of tragedy, professional triumph, and then media scandal, which cost her what should have been her first Oscar for Best Actress. Lillian Roth's book, I'll Cry Tomorrow, was published in 1954, written with Hollywood reporter Mike Connolly and author Gerald Frank. The book was commissioned as a result of the enormous popularity of Lillian Roth's appearance on the television program This Is Your Life in 1953, where she bravely bravely told her story of addiction and recovery. A massive bestseller, the book redefined the celebrity memoir genre, which once had been the realm of sanitized gloss that often sounded like it was printed directly from the studio publicity engine. Lillian Roth peeled the scab off every wound she had accumulated during her rise and fall. In graphic terms, she tells her story where she made $1 million before she turned 30 as a star of Broadway, Vaudeville, and Hollywood. At 34, she hit rock bottom and was given three months to live. Lillian Roth had her life decided for her before she was even born. Her mother, Katie, and her father, Arthur Rutstein, were stage-struck when they met and married. When Katie was pregnant, she often went to the theater, hoping the magic on stage would transfer to her unborn child. Katie named her daughter Lillian, after Lillian Russell, her favorite star. The Rutsteins planned to live their showbiz dreams vicariously through their daughter. When her sister Anne was born, they had two chances to make it to the top. Arthur taught his girls songs and speeches, along with stage movements from the time that they were toddlers. From that point, Katie dragged the girls to theatrical agents and producers' offices every day looking for work. 
Katie expanded her search to the film studios, often taking the girls on long day trips out to New Jersey. Lillian scored her first job when she was only five years old with educational pictures. She was cast as the mascot for the studio. Lillian posed as a living statue holding the lamp of knowledge. She was a beacon of the film company's commitment to juvenile education. Before she was photographed, Lillian's body was painted with white body makeup. An elderly man with a cigar in his mouth used a brush to apply the cosmetic base. At lunchtime, Katie offered to get sandwiches for them. Lillian had been standing on a box in the middle of the office while the man applied the makeup. As soon as her mother left with Anne, the man with the cigar locked the door and carried Lillian over to a couch. He said it was to keep her warm on the cold day. He told her what a nice little girl she was, only five years old. The man kept using the brush on Lillian's body. Soon he settled the brush between her legs, touching her with it over and over. She knew it was wrong. She was terrified. She was frozen. But what Lillian feared even more was her mother's reaction, the faces of disappointment and rage she would make if she found out. If anything ruined her mother's happiness at this moment, Lillian could not bear it. Katie was as quick to smack her daughters as she was to hug them. The man with the cigar heard Katie and Anne on the stairs. He unlocked the door, returned Lillian to the box, and resumed his work. Lillian pretended everything was fine. Katie continued with the girls to take them around to the producers in the film studios. Eventually, Lillian and Anne were cast in films, often playing the stars as children. Anne once played Theta Barra. They appeared together on screen as the Talmadge sisters as little girls. Lillian played Evelyn Nesbitt in one film. After staring at the lights one day, mesmerized by the trails they made, Lillian briefly lost her vision. Katie took her to a doctor who diagnosed the ailment as a case of Klieg eyes. After Lillian's vision returned, she was tormented with burning eyes throughout the night. At home, Lillian had to practice every day for the camera or rehearse new bits of dialogue. Katie set high standards for her daughter. She must always look and act like a little lady. She wasn't permitted free time to play with other kids, make friends, or develop any outside interests. One day, her mother pushed Lillian into an important Broadway producer's office. She told her to make it up. With false bravado, Lillian told a secretary that she had an appointment. Amused, the woman buzzed her through. Lillian entered the producer's office on her own. She watched a man rise from his desk, all six feet four inches of him. She tried to keep her knees from knocking as she asked for a part in his new show. He asked her for a line reading on the spot. He liked Lillian's delivery and hired her. She had her name in lights when she was only eight years old, Broadway's youngest star. Lillian had been attending the professional children's school from age six. Her classmates were Patsy Kelly, Ruby Keeler, Milton Berle, Jean Raymond, and Helen Mack. Also when she was eight years old, Lillian and her sister Anne joined the Keith Vaudeville circuit. They were booked on the same bill with George and Gracie Allen, the Marx Brothers, and George Jessel. 
Lillian performed dramatic impersonations of leading stars, such as the Barrymore Brothers, Gene Eagles, Lenore Ulrich, and Ruth Chatterton. She threw herself, body and soul, into the scenes and reveled at the applause. Then her sister Anne followed her act on stage, delivering a bald satire, spoofing Lillian's act. The crowds loved it, but Lillian burned with humiliation. At 13, Lillian's mother enrolled her in a private high school. She had one last year of formal education. Her classmates were showbiz notables like Milton Berle and Junior Lemley. At 14, she auditioned for Schubert. She belted out some smoking hot jazz tunes. Schubert asked her age. Lillian replied truthfully that she was nearly 15. The child labor laws in New York prevented him from casting her in the show, he said, but he could put her in the Chicago production of Artists and Models if she were willing to lie about her age and say she were 18. Lillian took the booking. When she arrived in Chicago, she shared a basement dressing room with 20 other showgirls and was suddenly thrust into the world as an adult. The topless finale in the show greatly embarrassed Lillian. Next, Lillian joined Earl Carroll's Vanities of 1928, where she used a line that often helped her when she met with difficult producers or threats to her star billing. She would say to a man, you sent for me, I didn't send for you. Another showgirl taught Lillian the secret to push her career to the next level. Lillian gave up ice cream sundaes backstage and ate fresh fruit instead. When she dropped 15 pounds, Ziegfeld came a-callin'. Jessie Lasky caught her in Ziegfeld's rooftop show one evening and invited Lillian to Hollywood to join the cast of a Maurice Chevalier picture for Paramount. Lillian misunderstood at first and thought she was supposed to play the romantic lead. She was starstruck when she met the director, Ernest Lubitsch. She told Lubitsch that she was a dramatic actress. She was no comedian. Lubitsch replied she would be when he was done with her. She drew good reviews for her turn as a maid in the love parade. Later, when she was flush with cash, she referred to one outfit she had as a Lubitsch. It was all in gray. Little gray boots, a gray skirt, gloves, coat, and silver fox. Working with him expanded her range in new and exciting ways. Lillian dug her heels in at the studio. She learned the ropes and expanded her capacities, or as she often says in her book, her potentialities. She could sing, dance, clown, and rip your guts out in dramatic roles, like when she stole every scene in The King of the Vagabonds. Lillian one day stood up to Cecil B. DeMille during production of Madame Satan when he wanted her to jump 200 feet into a net and then later fall through fake glass for the camera. She did the stunts like he wanted, but she still did the unthinkable by questioning the film colony bigwig. Lillian attended the social events the studio had lined up for her, but was otherwise lonely. 
a boy she knew from her one year of high school, was in the film colony. He worked as an assistant director in another studio. His name was David Lyons. Paramount disapproved of her relationship with David. He wasn't considered important enough for a rising star. They planned to marry anyway. David was tubercular and sickly, but he loved Lillian, and he was so proud of her achievements. When things, things turned sour with the studio, he encouraged her to go back to the stage. David became Lillian's booking agent. He brought her contracts at $1,700 a week, more than double what she made in Paramount. Her shows were standing room only, and, there, and her engagements were always held over. When David was hospitalized, he insisted that she keep up her nightly appearances. When David died suddenly, Lillian was inconsolable. She couldn't sleep. She couldn't stop crying. A nurse one night gave her two stiff drinks to help shut out the night terrors so she could sleep. In time, Lillian accepted dates with other men, including an Air Force pilot. She married him on a whim because he was a pleasant drinking partner. Soon she left him for a judge, whom she married thinking he would give her stability and comfort, but all he did was tell her to give up her career and accept a life of charity work and ladies who lunch. Lillian drank out of boredom and despair. One night, when the judge thought she was having a shower before bed, she drank a fifth of bourbon in 30 minutes. While she was married to the judge, she had her first traumatic experience with a bout of delirium tremens. She was out shopping in Saks Fifth Avenue with a woman from the charity clubs. Suddenly, the store began to spin. Lillian trembled. She gushed sweat. Her knees turned to jelly. She found she couldn't swallow. She asked her friend to get her outside for air. In a few minutes, she was okay. They went to another shop, but then the same thing happened. Her friend hailed a taxi and helped Lillian in the back seat. She asked if she should take her to a doctor. Lillian replied she couldn't swallow. She needed some water. The taxi driver looked in the rearview mirror and interrupted. Water, hell, she needs a drink, he said. He pulled over in front of a bar. The bartender poured out a shot of rye and handed it to Lillian. The bartender asked if the spells came often. Lillian shook her head no. He advised her to carry a couple shots on her just in case. Lillian's drinking had officially entered a new stage. She carried multiple mini bottles in her purse, which grew larger in size over time, as did the frequency of how much she drank. On holiday from the judge in Hollywood, she met a shady gambler named Art. He didn't drink often, he said, because he got in a bad way when he did. Art degraded her when she drank. He called her a bum. One night, he said to Lillian, I'll show you drinking, and he lined up three bottles of bourbon. Between drinks, he gave Lillian an awful beating. She still had enough sense in her at this point to run away from him. To be sure, the film sanitizes the truth about her brutal treatment from men. 
Worst of all the men was her third husband, scam artist Mark Harris. He broke her jaw. One night he smashed a plate of food in her face, which lacerated her nose. Then he dragged her from the restaurant around to different clubs, so everyone could see what a mess Lillian was, her hair and face matted with blood and grime. During another beating, he busted open her scalp. Another time, he broke five ribs. He threatened to kill Lillian. Once, he tried to strip off her clothes at Hollywood and Vine. And any time he would be arrested, he would promise to reform or else kill her if she didn't withdraw the police report. And Mark Harris spent nearly all of her money. Lillian Roth's problems with the wrong men were tied up with her addiction to alcohol. It would take a long time to face those problems, even after she had self-committed to a psychiatric hospital for six months, the abuse and addiction persisted. Released, she returned to the bottle and wound up on Skid Row. Eventually, after a failed suicide attempt, she found the courage to find an AA chapter and reached out for help. She met a community of carers who helped Lillian to dry out and find a reason to live. Susan Hayward was Lillian's choice to play her life story on the big screen for the MGM adaptation. It's difficult to imagine June Allison in the leading role, whom Dory Sherry had initially picked. Other hopefuls who wanted the part were Shelley Winters, Jane Russell, Anne Blythe, and Gene Simmons. The first thing Susan did to prepare for the role was to fly to Las Vegas and watch Lillian's show every night for five nights. In the audience, Susan committed to memory, Ross' vocal inflections, her body movements, and especially the way she used her hands when she sang a song. From the time she was a little girl, Lillian hated her hands. She felt they were short and stubby rather than the long, graceful fingers she noted on other girls or women on the stage. One of her nicknames was Butterfingers because she was prone to be clumsy. But Lillian, on top of her nervous habit of chewing her fingers, also liked to draw attention away from her hands with dramatic hand movements that she practiced over and over. Susan also attended Alcoholic Anonymous meetings and took notes. She went to local jails and hospitals and observed people suffering with dipsomania, and delirium tremens. Susan Hayward gave credit to her performance to her director, Daniel Mann. She told a reporter, Danny checked every detail. He wouldn't let me cheat with lipstick or even a curl. If he thought my hair wasn't mussed up enough, he put water on his hands and mashed it down. Danny and I went to AA meetings, hospitals, and even jails because I had to know that woman's life and what it had become. She also spent many days with Lillian Roth. Near the end of her life, before she died in 1980, Lillian Roth told an interviewer that although she spent many hours with Susan Hayward, she never felt she got to know her because Susan studied her so intently. Susan wanted to know everything about Lillian, whether it was in the script or not. Lillian admitted the things eventually got to the stage where she didn't know if it was me or Susie was me. 
When Lillian watched Susan on screen, especially during the musical numbers, she felt as though she were looking in a mirror. Initially, MGM had planned to hire a professional singer to dub Susan's voice, as had been the case when Susan portrayed singers such as Dixie Lee Crosby and Jane Froman. But one day during rehearsal, Johnny Green, the music supervisor on set, and the conductor, thought Susan Hayward's voice was good enough to carry the picture. He coaxed Susan to sing and then set up an impromptu recording session. It was spur of the moment, there was no pressure on Susan, just a few improvised numbers for fun. Susan relaxed. She belted out, sing you sing it, sinners. And then when the red, red robin comes bob, bob, bobbing along for the boys and the crew. Johnny Green shared the tapes with director Danny Mann and the men in the front office. They were all uniformly impressed. They invited members of the press to listen to Susan. And Johnny Green asked the news hound, she's a female bass, isn't she, boys? Did you ever hear such timber? The recordings convinced the suits, and they convinced Susan Hayward that she should sing for the first time in a picture. Susan told the press that her singing voice was a big surprise gift, a new career to be explored. She practiced and practiced to build her voice for the role. MGM's publicity department whipped up copy to announce Susan's first time singing on screen, almost like they did once for Garbo for her first time talking on screen. When production began, MGM had hired out a theater in Hollywood to serve as the set for This Is Your Life, the television program where Lillian Roth first shared her story. When Daniel Mann lined up the shot of Susan walking from the back of the theater towards the stage, passing along the rows of seated audience members, only Susan's head and shoulders appeared on camera. Mann halted the shot and told the Metro executives who stood and watched that the ramp along the aisles would have to be rebuilt. He wanted to see the faces in the crowd as Susan walked to the stage to tell her life story. The men from the front office balked. It would put them behind schedule. It would add to the budget. Mann replied that he had a garden he would happily sit in until they made it happen. Susan witnessed the ultimatum Mann gave to the front office executives. She was impressed by the director's commitment to art rather than the financial bottom line. She put herself through the ringer each day on set, overwrought with emotion, dredging up her own personal struggles to meet the challenges of the role. Her laser focus never wavered, whether she was singing and dancing in a scene or dressed in tatters, lurching around Skid Row. The film opens with a few scenes of Lillian Roth as a child, schlepping around with her mother on auditions without much access to the normal life most kids have. The film dials down her mother's emotional and physical abuse. In her memoir, Lillian's lasting emotions from her childhood are fear and loneliness. She was always terrified of her mother's disapproval. And she was lonely because she didn't have friends or normal routine or life as a child. Susan Hayward taps into the fear Lillian felt, which can best explain the reason why she jumped in so many bad relationships with men. 
She panics for a man the same way she panics for a bottle. Lillian grabbed men, hastily asking for a commitment. She never thought enough of herself to wonder if the men were worth having. In the film, there's David, her romantic ideal, but once he has a little fainting spell in a dress shop one day, viewers know he's not long for this world. She's consumed by grief, can't sleep, and attempts to work through her depression. And like in Lillian's real-life story, after many sleepless nights, a nurse hands Lillian a drink, then another. The glass was supposed to contain brown-colored water, but the director, Danny Mann, substituted whiskey. He wanted the camera to catch the way Susan winces at the real thing. For the first time in weeks, Lillian sleeps soundly after the drinks without nightmares. From there, Lillian begins a cycle of performing and then drinking herself to sleep every night. It's not long before she tries to find a replacement for David once he dies. She settles for that Air Force pilot with little ambition. Later, she meets Tony, a scam artist played by Richard Conti. When she meets Tony, Susan as Lillian is installed in a gorgeous penthouse apartment. She's at the top of her career. She's a star. She has money, a fantastic wardrobe, plenty of friends, and her drinking is only starting to become a problem. On the surface, she's content as an independent divorcee. She gives Tony the brush off when he tries to ask her out at first. What draws her to him is a little speech he gives about why he doesn't drink very much. He turns down her offer of a drink, explaining that he's already a bit high and he doesn't need any more. That gets all of her attention. Tony tells her about the little policeman that lives in his head, who tells him when he's had enough to drink. You can see the wheels turning in Susan's head, that she's thinking, this is just the guy I need. He'll show me how to get control. Tony takes the first step in the pickup artist's handbook. He makes plans with Lillian, and then he stands her up. She is crushed when he doesn't keep their date for lunch. Lillian had been good all day. She had only orange juice before he was set to arrive. She skipped the two fingers of gin she normally had as an eye-opener. When he doesn't show and she gives up instead of having lunch with her mother, Susan puts her in a car and sends her off. Susan has an attack of the shakes while she's walking down the street of Manhattan. It may be the first time it happened when she didn't have a drink at hand. She ducks into a little tavern and asks for water. The sympathetic waitress and the scornful bartender recognize Susan's symptoms. The man behind the bar pours out a shot, which the waitress carries over for Susan to toss back. Then it's followed with a glass of a larger measure. The waitress tells her she should carry a flask just in case she gets caught out again. Susan's hand had been on the larger glass, but the moment of transparency, of being seen, that she's caught out by two strangers who witness her private, shameful moment of distress is more than she can bear. She leaves the glass full and runs out of the bar. 
Tony's inevitable return comes with the standard lines from a master manipulator. By the end of her reunion with Tony, she's confessed her neediness, pledged herself, and given him a big fat check for one of his business deals. Richard Conti is absolutely chilling as a sadist in a white dinner jacket. He's all smiles and romance until the mask falls away and reveals a monster. He beats Lillian. He all but pours liquor down her throat. He keeps her locked up as his prisoner. The scene that leaves me as limp as a dish rag each time I see the picture is the one where Lillian's career is in free fall and she's forced to share a tiny flat with her mother, played by Joe Van Fleet. This is the psychodrama at the center of the picture. Lillian Roth loves her mother, but she also hates her. It's an old story told a million times, but every bit of this scene is as fresh as a salted wound. Katie's flat is airless as a tin of sardines. It has cold water walk-up written all over it. But she's tried to make it less grim. The shells have fresh paper on them. She's sewn a curtain to give the illusion of space between the kitchen and the sleeping area. Everything is neat and orderly, but it's the last stop before they're out on the street. As Susan paces the room, it grows smaller and smaller. She's counting time now by the bottle, by the number of drinks she has left in it. Lillian implores Joe Van Fleet's Katie to go out and get the pint, get the bottle. In Roth's memoir, she recalled that true alcoholics could be spotted by the pints they purchased. They didn't have the funds to purchase larger quantities, like a whole fifth of liquor. They lived from one small bottle to the next, scraping by. Susan stalks the room like a jumble of raw nerves. She's in full-blown panic mode. She's on the cusp of delirium tremens. Katie attempts to keep busy with, with the chores in the kitchen and ignores her daughter's alarm. Susan Hayward bounces off the walls in a frenzy. When the what's left in the pint bottle breaks, the stopper is really off the bottle and Susan explodes. Katie bursts into tears at the strain of living with her daughter's demons. The mood in the room shifts as Susan tries to take it back, dial it down, tries to soothe Katie and atone for the scene. She says all the things that you're supposed to to restore normalcy. She'll go to the delicatessen and pick them up some nice treats. Katie nods. No matter how many times her daughter has told her one thing and done another, or made promises that wouldn't be kept, Katie wants to believe her. Susan tucks her mother's purse under her arm and clutches the door handle only long enough to appease the older woman and make a a hasty exit. Off to the bar she goes. The hysteria whips up and out of the room like a tornado. The layers and contours of addiction are laid bare in Susan Hayward's wardrobe by Helen Rose. From her first scene where she performs Sing You Sinners in a multi-tiered set, 
Susan wears an airy chiffon frock that floats and breathes which, with as much personality as the woman singing. Early in Helm Rose's career, she took a job designing dresses in chiffon, which was the company's specialty. She felt an affinity for the whispery thin fabric that requires structure and patience to hold form. If you work primarily with chiffon, you've got to be clever with boning and how the slippery nature of the fabric has to find discipline on the body. Helen Rose remarked of her favorite material, nothing moves and picks up light like chiffon. Helen Rose won the Oscar for black and white costume design for I'll, I'll Cry Tomorrow. Susan Hayward presented the little gold man statue to Helen. Susan Hayward's chiffon frocks and day suits are immaculate. And then there's a glamorous mink coat. There would have to be the star's true calling card. The mink coat is the first thing she reaches for when she sneaks away from Tony in the middle of the night after being kept his prisoner. The mink coat tethers Susan to her independent life as a star. When Susan unravels, reeling around Skid Row, after enduring months of Tony's abuse, she pawns everything. The mink is the last to go, and when she shrugs it off for the price of cocktails, you feel a palpable loss. It's like she's reached the point of no return. Susan Hayward had her share of emotional turmoil during production. I'll Cry Tomorrow nearly ended in tragedy. Bringing Lillian Roth's story to the screen was taxing physically and psychologically. Susan could not hide behind glamour as a shield as she had done in other pictures. She was vulnerable, torn wide open on set every day. During the scene where she experiences DTs in her bed as she dries out, held down by the AA members, the crew members who looked forward to cocktails at the end of the day watched and shook in their boots. Each moment she was on screen, Susan Hayward brought realism and integrity to the horrors of Lillian's story. Susan Hayward once said that women shouldn't drink because they spend so much time getting ready to go out, and then once they have two drinks, their face fell. That's what she does when she's in her cups as Lillian Roth. Susan lets her cheeks turn slack. The bottom half of her face falls. She loses center gravity and leans to the side. She walks with a corkscrew spine. Perhaps the strain on set, coupled with the bitterness that lingered after a bad divorce from Jess Barker and the ongoing threats he made for a custody battle over their twins and the bad breakup she had with Howard Hughes contributed to a near-fatal overdose. At home one night, she studied the script. It was the tumultuous scene with her mother, played by Joe Van Fleet. Susan was drinking Chivas Regal. She paced around the room. She was nervous, agitated. She took some sleeping pills, then some more sleeping pills. She circled the lines on the script about how her mother would always be taken care of with a red pencil. Before the pills kicked in, Susan rang her mother and repeated the line that she would be taken care of. Ellen Mariner 
had been in bed. It was 3 a.m. But she knew something was dreadfully wrong with her daughter. She jumped out of bed and rang the police. Then she phoned her son, Wally, and told him to get over to Susan's straight away. Daniel Mann, the director, and the cast and crew were shocked when they learned what happened. Production was shut down. Nobody had anticipated that Susan was on the edge of a breakdown. Susan's brother Wally and Cleo, her housekeeper, panicked and asked the police to take her to a hospital right away. It might be too late if they waited for the ambulance. Somehow the press was there, and they snapped pictures of Susan Susan completely uh, knocked out and as limp and unresponsive. In the hospital, she lapsed into a coma. But Susan made a full recovery. Daniel Mann went to visit her at home shortly after her release from the hospital. She looked refreshed, as though she had a long rest or a spa holiday. Others noted that the overdose provided a shock to Susan's system, maybe that enabled her to release the tension that had been building in her since the production began. Everyone seemed reassured that she was fine now, but it's not as though MGM was overly solicitous of the well-being of its stars, many who struggle with the demands of the studio. And Susan Hayward was out on loan from 20th Century Fox. She returned to the set without further incident. Scandal erupted, though, near the end of the picture, the aftermath of which may have cost Susan the Oscar for Best Actress. An actor who is known for westerns had a small part in I'll Cry Tomorrow, and he brought scandal on top of Susan's near-death tragedy. Donald Barry de Acosta, who went by Don Barry, known as Red, to his friends, was spotted one night at Susan's date for a film premiere. This was when I'll Cry Tomorrow was still in production. Barry squired many stars in the film colony. One woman remarked, I don't know what Don Barry has, but whatever it is, he should bottle it. Hollywood reporters printed stories about Susan and Red. Luella Parsons, who was Susan's biggest champion in the media, reluctantly admitted to the courtship, but added, Susie's had so much trouble with the opposite sex that I don't look to see her getting involved again. But involved she was. She took Barry with her to the first cut of I'll Cry Tomorrow. They snuck out the back before the press could ask any questions. Susan went out with Barry on a Thursday evening in early November 1955, and she spent the night at his house. Early the next morning, they had a visitor, and all hell broke loose. Barry had been seeing Jill Jarman, who had supporting roles in film and television. Jill had been trying to reach Red by phone. When he didn't answer, she showed up at his door, which she found open. She walked inside and back to the bedroom. You can imagine the scene. Jill found them in bed and demanded to know who the girl was. Well, that's Jill's version. I mean, what actress in town would need to be introduced to Susan Hayward, even if she was rumpled in some man's bed? Jill fired off a few salty remarks about Susan. Susan took offense. Newspaper accounts include the charge that Susan attacked Jill and punched her, tore off her clothes, and maybe even bit her finger. 
Jill revealed marks on her body to the press. Susan denied it. Then Jill went to Jess Barker's lawyer to file action and gave a statement to reporters that said she hoped her suit would help Jess win custody of the boys, Greg and Tim. Susan revised her story. She had an altercation with Jill during coffee at Don Barry's house. Susan was far more candid, though, with the press than other stars might have been. She admitted, quote, I could say I was in the dining room at the time, but I wasn't. I was in the bedroom in my pajamas. Miss Jarman walked into the bedroom and made an insulting remark. It was nasty. Being Irish, this infuriated me. And I went toward her and a wrestling match ensued. I don't know who swung the first blow. I struck her. It wasn't over Don Barry. My anger was at this woman, whom I never saw before, daring to use such language, so insulting that I cannot even repeat it. I don't take that kind of talk from anyone. Susan's account sounds earnest and accurate. She was fighting for her honor, not for some man. But the press dragged her name in the mud. She had openly admitted that she slept with a man she wasn't married to, which was a threat to the studio's glossy image. The headlines and stories disrupted the solemnity of the Oscar campaign. The Conservative Academy Awards might celebrate a story about an unconventional woman, but the stories about Susan made her life look messy and scandalous. It's reasonable to suggest they were too afraid of negative publicity to give Susan Hayward the Oscar. Susan Hayward first arrived in Hollywood during 1937, when director George Cukor spotted her picture in a magazine and invited her to test for Scarlett O'Hara. As an inexperienced newcomer, she would not have been a serious contender for the part. The search for Scarlett was an inspired publicity campaign, and it helped open doors at the studios for aspiring starlets such as Susan Hayward. Susan had plenty of experience overcoming adversity, which no doubt primed her for a career as the post-war queen of melodrama. A car slammed into her when she was a girl playing in the streets, and the prognosis was grim. Doctors warned her parents that little Edith Mariner might never walk again. It wasn't long before she powered through recovery. She then took a job delivering uh, a, a Brooklyn newspaper. She was the first girl hired for a paper route. Newsies were territorial and competitive. They didn't take kindly to a paper route going to a girl. She fought them off and learned how to be cunning. When she became a standout in the high school dramatic club, a teacher recommended that she apply to the Thornton Dramatic School. Susan learned two very important lessons there, which prepared her for the Vipers in Hollywood. Susan fell for a young man in the drama school. Things between them turned serious. That is, until she realized that her beloved intended to marry her and take her scholarship once she dropped out to be his wife. If a man is willing to marry a woman for her free ride, what wouldn't he do? Once she found her ticket to Hollywood, Thornton, the head of the drama school, demanded that Susan turn over a percentage of her studio salary to him. He even threatened legal action. 
She told him to shove it. When a suit in the front office told Susan Hayward to lose her Brooklyn accent, she took the news with her usual self-sufficiency. Susan Hayward did not seek a studio voice coach. She took a more direct method for smoothing out the hard consonants and stretchy vowels in her Brooklyn accent. Instead of submitting to months of an accent makeover with an instructor, she found the answer on the big screen. Ronald Coleman was her voice coach, specifically Ronald Coleman in The Prisoner of Zenda. Susan watched the picture over and over. Nearly 100 times, she sat and repeated the lines, mimicking his register and inflections. She would correct herself. Theater patrons nearby her seat would call hush. When she ignored them, they went for the usher. If I were to summarize Susan Hayward's romantic history in the briefest possible terms, I would say she had 10 miserable years with Jess Parker and 10 wonderful years with second husband Eaton Chalkley. Jess was an actor in Hollywood who never matched his wife's talent or rise in fame. He struggled to find work. While Susan's career took off, Jess was billed seventh in an Abbott and Costello picture. He tried to play man of the house and control the finances, even though Susan brought in six figures a year and he took in less than $400 annually by the time they divorced. When Susan Starr rose, she wanted a mink coat. It was the symbol of stardom for many women in the studio system. Ginger Rogers, Shelley Winters, Ava Gabor, and many other women had strong memories of what their first mink coat meant for them as a marker of their success. When Susan went to purchase her own mink coat, Jess intervened. She tried to put a good spin on it for the press by telling a reporter that Jess had given her a down payment on a mink. But to me, it just makes him seem like an arrogant skinflint. How dare he stand in the way of a woman's dreams? Especially when he had everything he wanted, thanks to her hard work. What finally busted up their marriage was a scene that could have been lifted straight from Lillian Roth's life story. Jess was drunk and instigated a massive row after Susan made a disparaging comment about his problems. He beat her, prevented her escape, locked her in the house, Then when she escaped, he dragged her across the patio, over bushes, tearing up her skin. He threw her in the pool and held her under. Neighbors witnessed Susan running naked into the house, as the heavy bathrobe she wore sunk like lead in the pool. Neighbors heard Susan beg for help for her life. Their breakup stayed in the headlines for months. When it was finally over, Susan vowed that if she were ever to marry again, the man would have to be as ambitious, and he should have at least as much in her salary. The strain from the marriage to a struggling actor taught her a valuable lesson. When she was set up with Eaton Chalkley, Susan could see he fit the bill. Chalkley was a former G-man with the FBI. He was a self-made millionaire and she was enchanted with his ranch in the South. Chalkley was so thoughtful that no matter where she ended her day, 
He had yellow roses waiting for her, her favorite flower. Eaton was a man, and a far cry from the stingy Jess Barker, who had complained in divorce court that he had to bring Susan flowers when he wanted to have sex with her. Susan Hayward was far from the only woman that Howard Hughes screwed over, but the degree to which he ruined her life makes the rest of his shabby treatment of women look polite by comparison. Like many of his entanglements, the affair he had with Susan Hayward that began at the end of 1953 and ended abruptly in 1954 ended badly. The Conqueror began filming in 1954, but dragged on for two years so that it was released after I'll Cry Tomorrow. Hughes had financed and produced The Conqueror, an epic about the life of Genghis Khan. John Wayne stepped into the fur-lined boots to play the lead. Susan Hayward was cast as the role of Princess Bortai. The picture crew spent the summer on location in the Escalante Desert in St. George, Utah. What nobody knew at the time was that one year earlier, in May 1953, an atomic bomb was detonated across the state line in Yucca Flat, Nevada. The RKO production site was only 145 miles away. The bomb tested by the Atomic Energy Commission became known as Dirty Harry. Historians pinpoint the blast as the largest nuclear disaster in the United States. Dirty Harry exploded in May 1953 at 5 a.m. Local residents in St. George were given no warning. Hours later, by 10 a.m., a thick gray ash descended on the town, burning skin on contact. Animals writhed in agony and died. Crops failed. People grew sick and died. Rates of leukemia and cancer skyrocketed. That wasn't the end of it. In addition to Dirty Harry, 10 more atomic bombs were detonated in the year before a production began on the Genghis Khan epic in the same spot. The company filmed on a nuclear fallout zone. If the grueling desert shoot weren't bad enough, what with the unbearable temperatures, relentless sun, the lack of comfort, the radioactive exposure continued even after they left the desert and packed up and returned to shoot interior shots at the RKO lot. The studio had 60 tons of the red earth transported back to the studio, so it would match the scenes inside the studio. Cast and crew had continuous exposure to radioactive waste. The director, Dick Powell, was the first to die of cancer in 1963. Actor Pedro Armendariz died later that year of cancer. He was only 51. Art director Carol Clark died of cancer in 1968. Agnes Moorhead died of uterine and lung cancer in 1974. By the time John Wayne died in 1979, 46 of the 220 cast and crew members had died of cancer, 
a total of 91 people had been diagnosed with cancer. In 1979, Jean Gerson, who had played Susan Hayward's maid in The Conqueror, filed a class action suit against the government for radioactive poisoning that led her to develop breast and skin cancer. The community of St. George also threatened legal action. Howard Hughes's biographers claim that he felt guilty about the news and had pulled all existing copies of the picture years before. But if he did feel so responsible, why did he screen the conqueror over and over at home at the end of his life? Susan Hayward suspected she had cancer and went for tests in 1972. She was still shocked by the test results. Susan's oncologist told her that she had 20 cancerous lesions on her brain. His prognosis was that she had three months to live. Naturally, she refused to accept the doctor's opinion. She did everything in her power to hold on, to survive. Susan parlayed the doctor's three months into three more years. Susan Hayward was only 57 years old when she died on the 14th of March, 1975. The following books helped me to write the episode, I'll Cry Tomorrow by Lillian Roth, Mike Connolly, and Gerald Frank. A Star is a Star is a Star, The The Lives and Loves of Susan Hayward by Christopher P. Anderson. Susan Hayward, Portrait of a Survivor by Beverly Lynette. The Films of Susan Hayward by Eduardo Moreno. Red, The Tempestuous Life of Susan Hayward by Robert LaGuardia and Jean Arceri. Just Make Them Beautiful, The Many Worlds of a Designing Woman by Helen Rose. Join me next time for episode 76 when I take a look at Elizabeth Taylor in Butterfield 8. And if you're enjoying the podcast, help a dame out and leave a nice review on iTunes or social media. Thanks for listening.